Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold, the JBJS podcast, bringing you the best and brightest in orthopedic literature this month. This is episode 35, covering the June 7th, 2023 issue, title Assimilate to the Borg, the AI issue of Your Case is on Hold. This is absolutely sort of a special issue, an unintentional special issue that has a lot of detail about uh, emerging concerns with artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence to construct papers or to write papers. Ultimately, uh, before we get into that, though, I should uh, introduce myself, allow myself to introduce myself. I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods and Professor and Mace Carrier for the House of Schleswig-Holstein, Sonderberg Glücksburg. And my colleague is just Antonia Chen. Andrew Schoenfeld needs no introduction. I, on the other hand, am a simple arthroplasty surgeon, which gets you a point in bingo just by hearing that. You're, you're a simple arthroplasty surgeon associated with a medical school in the Boston area. Like, oh, Boston University. I know not that, not, not that one, a different one, another one. Shall not be named, shall not be named. <laughs> Anyhow, the jokes, our comments about AI, and our thoughts and feelings on the very interesting items in this episode are all our own and not those of the Board of Trustees, the editorial board, uh, the editor-in-chief, et cetera, of JBJS or its other subsidiary journals. This episode of Your Cases on Hold is brought to you by Clinical Classroom. Check it out for all your ongoing CME and maintenance of certification needs. Also, just a great way to continue uh, your learning and enhance your understanding of the latest and most advanced information, literature, and technology in orthopedics. Uh, With that, let's get right into it. There's a lot to talk about in this episode. Uh, We're looking at top of the pile. The first is artificial intelligence applications and scholarly publication in orthopedic surgery. This is an editorial, uh, including the editors-in-chief of JBJS, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, and uh, the Bone and Joint Journal, Leopold and colleagues. This is permanently free. Then we have what's important, mentoring medical students in scholarly publishing, critical groundwork for success by Richter, also permanently free. Then we have what's important, the next academic chat GPT AI by B, uh, permanently free. So a lot that's permanently free there, definitely jump in and check it out. Then we have uh, an opinion piece, the terms multivariate and multivariable are used incorrectly and interchangeably in orthopedic publications. Should we care about the distinction by colon? I do want to say that there has been a a very palpable concern in the community, not not about the interchangeability of the terms, but going back to the AI thing. And, you know, many people are concerned that individuals are going to use things like chat GPT to write papers for them and write them very quickly. We have discussed many a times and used the, you know, the title, the lead in title for this episode, Assimilate to the Borg, when talking about 
sort of the black box of AI applications using artificial intelligence, machine learning, things of, of that neural networks. There are all sorts of different sort of phrases that all speak to the same thing. Using that to inform research studies or as the, the substitute for a methodologic approach in research. And I mean, really what, what we're talking about now, what they're talking about in these editorials and in these opinion pieces, I think you're kind of getting two sides because I think the, the next academic chat GPT is actually a little bit more uh, favorably inclined toward the use of AI. Certainly the official policy stance, which I, I'll say I agree with, is that it really has no bearing. It has no place in the community of researchers. When you write a paper, you are putting your thoughts and observations into the document. We care about what you have to say as an introduction. We care about what articles you have selected to cite because those are meaningful for you. And that might inform how I think about my next research approach. It's a communication is what it comes down to. At the end of the day, what you write in these articles is a communication to your colleagues, both now and in the future, in some cases, decades in the future for posterity. So abrogating that responsibility to a computer just because it'll just do it faster for you. I don't I don't see how that there is any real compelling reason that that should be appropriate. In addition, and, you know, above above board on the ICMJE requirements, chat GPT cannot be an author. It cannot take the responsibilities of being an author. So even if you disclose, oh, this was written by chat GPT one, I think it it violates a lot of our, the norms, uh, our community norms and the expectations. It also, you know, sort of, um, again, changes the value of what a paper actually is. I, many people are seeing that, you know, a paper is a something that you're going to count. It's a check mark that you accumulate enough and then you'll get a promotion or you'll get an opportunity for, for career advancement or something like that. But at the end of the day, each one of these articles has the capability and the impact for advancing patient care, for improving clinical practice. And that's ultimately what each one of these is supposed to be doing. And that only comes from you as the individual communicating your experience through the prism of the work that was done and citing articles that matter to you, not allowing a computer to sort of pull stuff together and create a Frankenstein's monster of a paper with citations that you know may not make any sense or that are marginally applicable. Um, that's my soapbox for that. I don't, I don't know how you feel about it. I'm going to cheer you on, my friend. <laughs> but it's an important area that we have to be able to be, we have to be vigilant as we go forward. I think, as you said, AI is going to be great in other areas. Uh, we're going to interface with AI clinically for sure, but it should not replace original ideas. And the whole point of AI is that it does not generate original ideas, right? It calls the ideas that are already present and spits it out. And so it's really important for us to discern original ideas, which is what we do as researchers and as people who, you know, read literature and we generate ideas and questions that cannot be brought up in the same way as AI. So we do have to be very careful in this next generation. Plus, as I would like to see from next generation, I want to make sure that they're not writing with ChatGPT because they need to garner their own skills before relying on some sort of artificial intelligence. Yeah. If you don't develop the skill set, you'll never have it to begin with. 
And that can lead to all sorts of further problems down the road. So here you heard it. It's unequivocal, 100% using chat GPT, your case is on hold. You cannot, uh, okay? You cannot. <laughs> go let's, let's go into the headlines. Some really exciting literature in this issue of the journal. I'll go first. My article is Identification of Novel Genetic Markers for the Risk of Spinal Pathologies, a Genome-Wide Association Study of Two Biobanks by Bavon Rutwet and colleagues. Um, and there's also a commentary, so you don't have to take it from me. This is really incredibly interesting work, looking into the intersection between healthcare science in the in the spine space and genetics, which also has, for me, really fascinating roots in kind of um, uh, history. Yeah, because when you're talking about genetics, you're talking about populations. And when you're talking about populations, you're talking about where those populations come from and if they're heterogeneous or, you know, what they're, they're it, it, as many who listen to this know, uh, I'm a, a vocational historian and also uh, a vocational sociologist and genealogist. So these kinds of studies really speak to me. It is worth checking out. What they did was they looked at cases of spondylolisthesis, spinal stenosis, degenerative disc disease, and pseudarthrosis, so non-union, after spinal fusion in the UK biobank, which includes 500,000 or so British patients who have genes in that biobank. And then they looked to externally validate their findings in that biobank with another one called FinGen, which has 260,000 Fins. So while the passing casual observer would say, oh, it's two, two Northern European populations, British would certainly be Northern European, Western European, but Finns are, are Finno-Ugric and they're not really even that close to like Swedish, Norwegian, Denmark, Iceland, those would group together and there would be a lot of historical uh, cross-pollination, if you will, with the British population, but actually the, the Finnish population is somewhat more separate. And so there's the historical, your historical uh, CME requirement has been checked for the year. Huge number of patients, 389,413 participants identified from the UK biobank. And then they found several loci that were implicated in spondylolisthesis, different ones in spinal stenosis, yet again, different ones in degenerative disc disease. And then um, very interestingly, two novel loci on chromosomes five and nine corresponding to the LOC 1053762270 gene that were implicated in pseudarthrosis. And of these, a few variants actually were also found in the FinGen population, but really for spinal stenosis and degenerative disc disease. That's what what uh, was replicated in the FinGen population. Now, um, this is, you know, very exciting hypothesis generating, very interesting. Obviously, I find it interesting. At the same time, you know, we tend to look at genetics as kind of this, uh, a, it certainly is hereditary, of course, but hereditary across the span of time. And, and realistically, you know, as you go further back in time, you also go further out. So like family trees go up, but they also go out. And then the degrees of relatedness to the individuals higher up in the tree is also the same as you go out in the tree. So for example, like second cousins are going to have a same set of great grandparents only. 
And third cousins, it would be twice great grandparents. And fourth cousins, it would be thrice great grandparents. Now, some people may start to say, well, I don't know my fourth cousins. I'm probably not even really related to them. And that's true. It's only a very small amount of DNA that you all are sharing. But that same amount is what you share with like your third great grandparents. And no one's going to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not related to my third great grandparents. They're your third great grandparents. But that is, you know, really like the people that you're related to are those that are like the most closest to you generationally and temporally uh, in your family. And so when you're talking about these kinds of loci in select populations, that's often why you're seeing things, you know, the British population is going to be more closely related to each other than the Finnish population is by and large. And so the ones that overlap where you're seeing them in both populations, that may actually have a much stronger uh, affinity for the outcomes of interest than when you're talking about things that may only appear within the, the British population. Obviously, things that need to be looked at in the future and are not you know, ready for prime time right now. But also that I wanted to point out, you know, it's really a small number of patients with the outcomes of interest, only 0.5% with spondylolisthesis, less than 2% of 1.8% with spinal stenosis, close to 3% with degenerative disc disease, and only 259 patients with pseudarthrosis. So these are really, really small numbers, especially when you consider that there were close to 390,000 individuals included in this analysis. And that may lead to restricted clinical variation and things of that sort. I mean, really interesting, though. I really enjoyed reading this work. I think that comes through just in the tone of my voice. And it would be interesting to see what happens in the future, uh, looking at these, hopefully, in other populations. These are increasingly widely available. We have one through our MGB system. They're also really, really hard to work with, actually. <laughs> so it's easier said than done to do this type of work. So. Um, I appreciate what was done here and uh, I'm fully supportive. So your voice is completely diametrically opposed to what you talked about when it came to chat GPT and AI and this topic. So that's for sure. Can you, you hear the sound of my voice? <laughs> Are you listening? Can you hear the words coming out of my mouth? So one of the things that always gets me with these studies is it shows such interesting information. And luckily they have a huge data bank because you need to be able to draw from so many different people. Obviously, this is a different, this is a specific geographic location. What does it mean? You know, does it, does that mean you screen patients for in advance and then you try to prevent these diseases from happening or you just become cognizant of it? What do you do with this data? If let's say you had this gene from your, you know, second great grandparents, 18th yeah. removed. I think it's probably more actionable for something like pseudarthrosis. Like, were you able to identify that? You might manage the, the patients differently or engage in more prophylaxis. I, you know, for the other ones, it, it is interesting. It, it may be interesting to understand where they came from or how they developed, but the academic applications are probably more imaginable than the clinical ones. How's that? Sounds good to me. I was just curious about this because we're trying to look into our own IOBank here at MGB. You say it's a very hard database to work with, but it does incorporate a lot of different individuals from all different walks of life. Mm -hmm. So it does have a more varied background, which is kind of nice and gives it a little more diversity, obviously, because all of our genetic compositions are different. So I agree. This, this work is exceedingly interesting. And there's a student who's working with us who is very good at this and has looked at periprosthetic joint infection and arthrofibrosis as two areas of interest. Obviously, being able to tell who's going to develop a complication, we may be able to do some steps to mitigate it. So stay tuned for future Your Cases on Hold podcast when we'll probably be discussing that work.
We'll see. It does involve the word arthroplasty, so it's definitely going to come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about arthroplasty, no, actually, this is not an arthroplasty article, interestingly enough. It's rates of burnout in female orthopedic surgeons correlates with barriers to gender equity. This is by Himestra et al. And we all know that burnout is an incredibly hot topic in medicine right now. And this topic, uh, this study was featuring female orthopedic surgeons specifically in Canada and evaluated their burnout. But they actually couched it not just in the burnout of the workplace, but actually couched it in gender bias. And so administered different surveys. They administered the gender bias scale, which is a specific um, scale that is looking at gender bias. And the gender bias, what they do is they break it down into multiple different categories. And there's large categories and like we call sub-factor or smaller categories And so the large categories include things like male privilege, disproportionate constraints, insufficient support, devaluation, hostility, and acquiescence. And there's a bunch of sub-factors that we'll kind of cover in a little bit here. could talk about this for a while, but obviously it's something that's probably not commonly used among us. Um, There are burnt out categories and uh, validated questionnaires, uh, but this study looked really at, you know, kind of two questions about job satisfaction and then looking at burnout as well too. So didn't do the full question because they didn't want to overburden people with long surveys because that also leads to burnout. So that's a problem there. They surveyed 330 surgeons. They included trainees, so residents, fellows, and attendings, as well as retirees as well. And it was a captive audience. And there's only so many orthopedic surgeons in Canada and numerically less than, for example, uh, the United States. And so they could potentially survey all the female orthopedic surgeons. They had a denominator. They had a 66.1% response rate, which is really high for surveys. So that's kind of nice to see that it's representative for you know more of the surgeons who are present. Um, they did find that the gender bias skill was valid in this population. And probably not surprising, they found that over 50%, specifically 50.5%, were burned out by their work. But interestingly enough, patient care still remained important. Re- uh, the respondents did not report feeling more callous towards people in their job. A lot of times with burnout, a lot of the questions they ask is, I don't care about my work. I don't care about patients. And they wanted to separate that from the actual feeling of burnout itself. Burnout was significantly correlated with a gender bias scale the higher order domains of male privilege and examples of male privilege include um, glass cliffs. So placing women in projects that could potentially fail so they can fall off the cliff Uh, male culture. So, you know, trying to fit a certain stereotype. And I think, you know, that's sometimes true in orthopedics and then they call it a two person career structure. So the assumption that your partner has to contribute to your career. There was also a correlation of burnout with devaluation. So devaluation examples are lack of acknowledgement. So that you do something and you don't get acknowledged for it or salary inequity, um, which has been shown throughout multiple different studies in literature. And then burnout was also correlated with disproportionate constraints. So disproportionate constraints um, contains constrained communication. So things like downplaying your accomplishments or not talking up um, yourself, cultural career constraints, such as, you know, oh, this is the right career for women or it's the wrong career for women. And then unequal standards, for example, expecting women to be more nurturing uh, or, uh, or they may be taken less seriously when they say something or people are less likely to respond to their comments as opposed to their male colleagues. So those are the three main areas that burnout was significantly correlated to. Again, this is outside of patient care. Burnout was also significantly correlated with lower order barriers of male culture. And again, mostly a male culture is, you know, stereotypically, if it's male dominated, maybe discussing more sports and other uh, areas that males may be discussing in general. Lack of acknowledgement, 
um, self-limited aspirations, maybe not asking for promotions, exclusions, and two-person career structure we talked about, and unequal standards. There was a previous study from the same group that found male culture and unequal standards to be source of burnout for this patient or surgeon population. That said, despite the burnout, 77.1% of surgeons were satisfied or very satisfied with their jobs, and 66.1% were satisfied or very satisfied with their roles in the workplace. So burning out, they just kind of worked through the burnout, but they were pretty happy with what they're doing in the workplace. There was a negative correlation between job satisfaction and burnout, which makes sense. Obviously, if you're more satisfied, you're less likely to feel the burnout. And burnout was also negatively correlated with surgeon age. So younger younger respondents, such as the um, residents and fellows, say they were more burnt out than older individuals. The hard part about that is two things. One, people who left the field and were not surveyed were not assessed. So they might have burned out and were gone and couldn't be surveyed. So that's one group of people. And then younger respondents may be in the earlier phase of potentially younger childcare, where there's a lot more hands-on responsibilities. And so it might be difficult to balance parenting and career responsibilities. And then also in our trainees, we know that there's probably less control over your schedule than when you're in attending or further along in practice where you can kind of control what you do. There was no correlation detected with stage or years in practice, practice setting, or marital status. And there's no significant correlation between job satisfaction and all the demographic variables. I'm actually surprised by that. I actually would I would actually perceive that maybe practice setting could make a difference or you know, like to talk about the two career kind of stage of things. And that's marital status. Um, that can make a difference on it. Obviously, it would be nice to see burnout men versus women in the Canadian area, but you couldn't use gender bias because that scale is made for women because you can't talk about the male culture if you're looking at just women. It also would have been nice to assess this beyond the binary confines of male and female is how they they, uh, analyze the data. The authors did point out that this data was collected in the middle of COVID. So this this information could disproportionately affect younger surgeons, right? A lot of our trainees were called to the front line and to ICU, areas like that, which may not have affected older surgeons or attending surgeons. So that's something to think about, too, when it comes to burning out, even though they obviously had high job satisfaction because they were taking care of patients. And these were crucial patient care things, but that could actually lead to burnout as well, too. So, you know, the take home message for me is, you know, what can we do knowing this? You know, can there's some things that we you know, they didn't see any difference between practice settings, but, you know, academic versus private practice. Potentially, there might be a difference in needing for academic advancement versus uh, monetary advancement. You know, how do we change the metrics? You know, most of our metrics are based specifically on publications, but are there other areas that we can um, bolster, such as participation in committees, teaching, mentoring, things that are not always recognized per se in the promotion process. And the final thing is actually, this is was actually an industry-sponsored study. While I find that surprising just because this is not an industry topic per se, obviously it affects all individuals um, and our industry partners, for example, the engineers tend to be predominantly male, which reflects also the orthopedic world as well too, and potentially up in the C-suite and other areas. So it was interesting seeing that that was industry-sponsored, but it's not an implant-driven topic. Yes, uh, important work, uh, an important topic, um, definitely very uh, thorough, comprehensive, and and interesting insights. I do think that the part about the uh, effect of the uh, call to the front lines uh, in terms of trainees during COVID will probably have downstream effects that will be realized in years to come yet. So we're now moving into the Your Cases on Hold featurette. This is the microbiome of osteoarthritic hip and knee joints. 
a prospective multi-center investigation by Goswami and colleagues. There is a visual summary for this and also a comment. So this study also, I thought, very, very uh, interesting. The authors looked at 113 patients from 13 institutions who underwent hip or knee arthroplasty with next generation sequencing to analyze the presence of even small numbers of, of bacteria. Normally, these sites are presumed to be sterile, but they wanted to explore the microbial composition within the joints of osteoarthritic patients. They found five the five most abundant genera, which I believe they had 113 of 117 joints had at least some type of, of bacteria in the milieu. And of these, the five most abundant were Escherichia, Cutibacterium, Staphylococcus, Acinetobacter, and Pseudomonas. So, you know, my thirst first thought was, are they in the joint to begin with, or are they in like the operative milieu? Because I think it's a misconception that, you know, when you scrub, when you scrub your hands or when the patient is prepped, it's not necessarily killing everything. You're just reducing the number of bacteria colony forming units to a sort of essentially, you know, non-functional, like non-functional numbers. It's not that there's nothing there. It's just that it's so low that they're not, or they're damaged in such a way that they're not going to be able to propagate and infect the, the joint. So, you know, you're not putting the patient's leg in an autoclave. And obviously the, the hip area is very close to the, the genital region, which has, you know, a high bacterial burden. The Escherichia for sure, Cutie bacterium we know is in the shoulder area quite regularly, very difficult to eradicate. Staphylococcus skin bug, Acinetobacter, that's a that's like a, a dirt bug, like it's it's in the soil or it's in sand. Pseudomonas, of course, is in water. So these can you know get in in various ways. But the authors are really wanting to make the case that they believe that this is not coming from the the milieu that's there in the joint and it was the hospital of origin explained almost 20 percent of the variance in microbial composition and then getting an injection within six months before replacement was associated with elevated abundance of several bacterial lineages and i think more and more surgeons in the arthroplasty space and of course you can speak to this are sensitive to you know they're going to want so many months after you've had a steroid exposure, but you know, an injection, an intraarticular steroid injection before they will consider doing the joint replacement. I think that supports this. But obviously, these are compromised joints. The osteoarthritic process itself may impact the ability of the immune system to clear out. That's why arthritic joints are oftentimes predisposed to septic arthritis, right? And and it's the same kind of phenomenon. These aren't necessarily at a level where they're causing an infection in the joint, they're just kind of hanging around and the immune system isn't, you know, taking care of them, or they're there by some other means or mechanism. The mechanism itself is suggested here. It's not substantiated. It's not ironclad in these contentions. But I thought it was interesting, you know, they go into that they assessed whether the hospital with the largest number of patients with a prior injection, this is nine of 11 patients at Rush University Medical Center, exhibited greater compositional variation than the other hospitals. And using a Permanova analytic technique, they found that there was no differences. But this is an incredibly small number of patients. And you're talking about 
113 patients spread over 13 institutions. So I really question the power to really detect those sorts of things. Not only do I question it, I would say that they don't have the power to show the differences across the institutions. And I think that's a little bit of a of a disruption in in their uh, armor, you know, to some of these claims. I think probably the most iron, like the, the most solid ground that they're resting on is about the injections, getting the injection and the association. And I think that supports what what certainly a lot of the arthroplasty folks in our practice uh, are doing in our in our department are doing. So I'll add one little caveat to that cortisone one. So I agree with you. I think cortisone is something that definitely changes the milieu. But if you look at their the information on it, they found each species would have abundances that significantly differed between patients who injections within the past six months. That's only eight species, right? So as again, I think it's very underpowered to see that. And my question is why six months? Why not three months? You know, wh- why that cutoff? of time frame because you know our practice is three months. If I do a cortisone injection, I wait three months. So now do I need to wait six months? You know, what is this telling me? But you know, the hardest part with next generation sequencing while it's a phenomenal tool for identifying organisms, it's too good for identifying super organisms. sensitive. Super but, sensitive, yeah. I mean the numbers you said it's like 113. That's a huge number, right? That you know that it's basically everyone, four patients that didn't <laughs> and you would say were they super sterile or super clean or they had no immune you know response I, what, who knows what that was and you know I mean, they said they they even said they filtered to eliminate potential contaminants and rare microbial lineages which excluded 3364 of the operational taxonomic units so that they already take off even more of that and they still had this sensitive result right so it's a really really high sensitive one what would be interesting though i think and they did talk about this in the discussion that there have been other studies using ngs in different patient populations they excluded patients with you know signs or local systemic infection or inflammatory arthritis or immune disease or metastatic disease or history of intravenous drug use i'd actually really like to see what those patients had in their milieu because i'd be curious to see if that would be different than a, a study population or a control population versus a control population. But, you know, it's nice because you have such a sensitive tool that you can see some of these things. Uh, One take-home message for me is don't use swabs. Swabs are just not as good as tissue and synovial fluid. The swab specimens had uh, more diversity. So it's like, eh, we don't love the swab specimens. What was interesting to me, besides what you exactly said about all those five different popular organisms, was the fact that previous studies from this group demonstrated high oral pathogens, right? And that's been a long standing thought process of the, you know, gut microbiome, the oral cavity getting down into joints. And so having previous studies using probably not next generation sequencing, but some sort of, you know, 16S sequencing or some sort of genetic sequencing to see what organisms are present. And they're having more like trepidmodium, more like oral pathogens. And we know that when you brush your teeth, you can shed up to 50% of your bacteria in your body. So that is something that people have seen as some of an inflammatory response, but none of their top five are oral pathogens, which was interesting enough. I would personally like to see how if they also differ with regards to severity of arthritis. So as you get more severe arthritis, does your milieu change? And it would be nice to separate hips versus knees because exactly as you're saying, the hips are closer to areas that are uncouth and the knee is a little bit further from this area, but closer to the foot and ankle. So, you know, which one wins with regards to microbiome and are they different between uh, different joints or is it really patient specific or as this study showed hospital specific? One thing also too is like- A lot of questions. There are a lot of questions and and no limitations paragraph. So one of those things that I really, really like is to make sure there's a limitations paragraph because you can put all these things in here um, that you know are limitations and can be highlighted in there. Yes. Uh, neither you nor I, I think, handled this one because uh, we're always uh, big on the limitations section. All right. So moving into the honorable mentions, 
outcomes at a mean of 13 years after proximal humeral fractures during adolescence by Ladeoja et al. This has a commentary and is permanently free. This is a study of 209 patients, 210 fractures out of the University of Helsinki in Finland. Maybe they had some of the genetic data in uh, the FinGen biobank. But this is essentially looking at uh, the outcomes over a decade. So really interesting on proximal humeral fractures and, you know, sort of functional outcomes and impairments. Um, overall, these seem to result in a rare impairment, overall high quality outcome, regardless of the uh, treatment approach. The next one is intraoperative direct sonication of implants and soft tissues for the diagnosis of periprosthetic joint infection by G and colleagues. This has a comment and infographic and is also free for 30 days. So get to the JBGS website and have a look. This included uh, 64 patients, 36 with uh, PJI and 28 with aseptic failure when combined with incubation in backed alert bottles, direct intraoperative sonication of implants and soft tissues without a sonication tube was more sensitive than conventional synovial fluid culture and could reliably and rapidly detect bacteria commonly found in PJI. So another advancement in the arthroplasty space around prosthetic joint infections. Next is, I often feel conflicted in denying surgery. Perspectives of orthopedic surgeons on body mass index thresholds for total joint arthroplasty, a qualitative study by Godziuk uh, and colleagues. This was a uh, qualitative work that identified multi-level complex factors underlying the BMI threshold used for total joint eligibility across practices. They suggest the clinical relevance is that the study may influence how orthopedic surgeons think about their own practices and how they approach patients considering surgical eligibility. So that is, of course, uh, very important and something that we've touched on in previous episodes of Your Cases on Hold. And last, we have the current concepts review, the challenge of emerging resistant gram-positive pathogens in hip and knee periprosthetic joint infections by Garvin and colleagues. This has a number of uh, important points, including a very interesting historical, historical perspective. Antimicrobial agents used in the prevention or management of infection should be selected appropriately and duration of therapy should be carefully considered in order to mitigate the risk of developing bacterial resistance. I think that goes without saying, but um, that's what was in this episode. Our time is done here. Uh, we've run out of time. We'll try to do better next time. And uh, for you all who've been listening, I hope uh, that run is done. Your workout's in. You're now pulling into your driveway or your case is ready to go. But for us here, your case will always be on hold. <laughs> <laughs>